think it's important for me that the people I write about ask the big questions or struggle with them in some way. Not necessarily that they come to the same conclusions that I've come to, but at least they say these are the big questions, these are the things worth talking about. If you do that, I think you you keep the big questions alive. And I think that's 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 one of our jobs is to keep the big questions alive. You are listening to the Act One Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular, welcome back. I'm your host, James Duke. Thanks for listening. After listening to today's program, if you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to rate us and leave us a good review. My guest today is author and poet Steve Turner. Steve is an English music journalist, biographer, and poet who has spent his career chronicling and interviewing people from the worlds of music, film, television, fashion, art, and literature. He regularly contributes to newspapers such as The Mail on Sunday and The Times. His many books include his seminal work, Imagine, A Vision for Christians in the Arts, Hungry for Heaven, Rock and Roll and the Search for Redemption, U2 Rattle and Hum, and A Hard's Day Right, the stories behind every Beatles song. It's a great book. Steve lives in London with his wife and two children. Steve is a really good friend of Act One, and I had a fantastic conversation with him back in December. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Steve Turner, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a real privilege and honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to talk to you about a lot of different topics today. Uh, I want to start off, though, with just getting to know you a little bit uh, personally. Can you describe for our listeners a little bit about your own spiritual journey? When was it that you um, became a follower of Christ? Were you were you raised in a Christian home, or was this a, a faith was something that was new to you that you came later in life? No, um, I, I was raised in a Christian family. Um, <clears throat> my parents. Um, became Christians around the time I was born. So they, they were kind of new Christians without any uh, Christian background. And, and they were kind of fumbling around trying to uh, find how it worked and trying to find what was a good church and stuff like that. And um, so I grew up in a, you know, in a loving home. It was very um, supportive. It was, um, oh, I, I mean, th- they, they sort of subscribed to American magazines and we would get like um, Sunday school material from Moody Press in Chicago and things like that. Oh, wow. So okay. I kind of became familiar with, um, uh, you know, American evangelicalism at quite an early age, I suppose. Like uh, my dad would um, like have a, a record of Billy Graham preaching and things like that. So I, oh. and he would listen to um, preachers on, uh, on, on the radio and so some American preachers. So uh I was quite familiar with, um, yeah, as I say, American Christianity plus uh, American culture, you know, because I, in the Sunday school, Sunday school pamphlets, you'd see kids wearing different kind of clothes to what we were wearing in England. <laughs> um, but then uh, I, I, I didn't have any sort of theological objections to what I heard, but I, I suppose I had cultural objections. I, I I didn't know if I wanted to be part of this thing. I didn't really kind of identify with the people who were lovely people, but I, you know, culturally they they were not the sort of people I aspired to be. They, they seemed more 
you know kind of straight and more conservative in the way they dress and everything like that and when when you're younger when you're a teenager that's that's a kind of an important thing like whether, whether you identify with people yeah but um I, I became a christian when i was 19 um uh, yeah 19 yeah um i suppose i mean various things sort of collided at the same time but um I think when you when you grow up in a Christian home, there's probably many times you, you kind of lay in bed at night and you say, oh, Jesus, you know, save me. And, you know, and, and you don't quite know whether it's worked or whether you prayed hard enough or or loud enough or said the right words or whatever. You're not quite sure. But um, I, I knew that I. I knew that. Well, I knew that doing something didn't make you a Christian, but I also knew that if I became a Christian, I'd have to do something. And um, <laughs> there, were some, uh, there were some kids in the church and they were going to visit some um, young people in, a, I, I guess you would call it a reformatory in the States, you know, like a young offenders prison, if you like. Okay. And, 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 I, and I went along and, and that, that sort of day, I, I almost date as, as my, the beginning of my, faith because I, I actually was taking an action I was I was identifying with with some people and I was I was more likely before that to have been hanging around with the people who ended up in the reformatory and now I was visiting <laughs> you know, as a Christian right. <laughs> so um yeah and I that 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 was that was the start of it yeah prior to that was it that the this idea of faith in Jesus it 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 was uh it was known right like you you yeah. knew it you were aware of it but um but now for the first time you wanted to identify like there was an identification with what you wanted to do is that yeah. right like action yeah. I, I mean the thing i'd heard said i all my life was uh, you know you believe jesus died for your sins and uh, ask him into your heart and and then you'll be you will become saved you will become a christian and I, I used to think, well, um, uh, you know, there don't seem too many sort of historical objections to the idea that Christ lived and possibly the same that he died. Yeah, it seems reasonable. He died for our sins, probably. But I couldn't see what difference that made, excepting two or three facts like that. You know, like I accepted that uh, William the Conqueror invaded Britain in 1066, but it didn't make any difference to my life. It was just <laughs> Act that I nodded assent to and then um, I remember my dad saying um, I think he was sort of paraphrasing Billy Graham who said when, when you believe in Christ you believe into him you know you're, you're, you're putting your faith into him uh, and, I, and I I understood it in a different way but but I used to I used to puzzle over that quite a lot like what does it mean believe in Jesus believe he died do you it's like a head trick you know yeah. What do you say to people there? You know, there's a obviously been a huge rise over the past several years. Uh, I think it's the term is the new atheism or there's a lot of conversations about the intellectual arguments for faith. Do you see faith as an intellectual exercise is or is it really, as you uh, put it, even for your own kind of quote unquote conversion, it really is more about putting it in action, doing doing your faith well it it, it is doing uh, um, i went to labrie in um, 1970 francis schaefer's community that was in switzerland and, and dr schaefer used to say um you have to bow 
twice along the line and he said first of all you have to bow bow with your mind you know intellectually you have to say yeah the, the death of christ the resurrection you know you you assent to these things you know, so intellectually you go yes but he said you've also got to bow with your heart which is uh you know where, where the kind of the emotions and the passions and, and and the fact that you will go out and do something it's not just a, like ticking a box yeah like yeah jesus died yeah tick so it, it, it's not either or it, it's both together um as, as far as um the debate with atheists i, I think i, I would pursue the line that i i mean we, we normally take the position like we're going to be attacked how can we defend ourselves but i, I would i would more like to be on the attack in the sense that it's the atheist that has the vulnerable vulnerable position and i think the vulnerability is i, I don't think it's it seems impossible to live consistently with, with that view you know to say you know we're just meat machines I mean, I've, I've read the interviews with physicists who say we're just meat machines, but like when they get home with their wife or, or, or if, if their child falls ill, then no, it's not a meat machine. You know, there's something else comes into play. So I, that atheists tend to pick on Christians and say, you know, well, if you believe that, you must believe that. That's ridiculous. And there's not enough of Christians going and not, not destroying atheists for the sake. I mean, I hate that sort of. There's going to be a debate and they'll say, uh, uh, you know, so-and-so uh, -so takes Dawkins down or really, you know, right. yeah. kind of language of combat. And I, Because Schaefer used to talk about, um, he used to picture people as like having a little uh, roof over them. That, that's their little house of their beliefs. And as um, a sort of pre-evangelistic um, approach is you have to sort of take the roof off the person you have to sort of expose them to the inconsistency of, of their arguments but he, he said you've got to be really careful when you do that because you you know it's it's a hard thing to take somebody's faith away whatever their faith is in you know once you start toying with that it, it can leave them very exposed for for a short time i love that line in amazing grace it says it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved i think it's relieved but, you know, there's that sort of moment when you are fearful, you know, you've lost the old belief and you don't know where you are. And then the new the new life comes into play. That's beautiful. I, your your context uh, being in Europe, uh, in England, obviously very different than our context here in the United States. I feel as though um, I wonder if you could speak to this a little bit. I, I feel as though we're catching up to you guys in terms of the uh, cultural, um, Christianity's influence on culture seems to be being minimized more and more here. And, and you can make the argument that it's, it's been that way in Europe for a while. And it's like, we're kind of catching up to you guys with that. Yeah. And so as someone who has lived out their faith now in that context, uh, you looking at what's happening now in the United States, I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, on how we can do a better job living in what what I would describe as, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would describe it as a post-Christian culture. Right. And uh, just curious um, your thoughts on that. No, I, th I think it's, 
America is such a strange country. It's so big and so varied, isn't it? I, I mean, uh, you, you, I mean, you can see it by the political maps of political voting. It's almost like two different countries, isn't it? You know, the, the East and West yes. Coast. Yes, and then, very, very much so. <laughs> in the middle. Yeah. Um, but the what 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 was the Bible Belt? I mean, at least people. I mean, you were saying you came from Memphis, so uh, you know all about that. I mean people would know the stories and certain sort of words and phrases would have a kind of a resonance. I think that's, um, that's what is, that's what doesn't exist in our, our, our country, really. You um, probably, probably my generation, there would have been a quite a good percentage who would have gone to Sunday school, even if their parents weren't Christians, because they'd think, get them out of the house for a couple of hours on a Sunday afternoon. And then people got to know the stories and some of the language and some hymns and some prayers and had some idea of worship and things like that but now I mean you've got people who's maybe their parents never had any church contact and now they haven't either and so you feel you're um I mean it's again uh, mentioned Francis Schaeffer but again he, he, he was very aware that that was happening and uh, which is why he talked about pre-evangelism you know you've almost in the days of Billy Graham, um, you could stand up and sort of, he, he could approach people by saying, are you, are you sure you're, you're a Christian? Are you really right. a Christian? Have you thought about yeah. it? Mm -hmm. Now, that, that's not the issue facing most people. They're not, they're not concerned. Are they really Christians? Um, yeah. It's almost, like a, it's almost like a redefinition of terms. It's, it's almost yeah. like we, we have to read. We have to we have to redefine terms before we use them again. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because, like you said, they've been used. I, I, I have found it. I did grow up in a religious context, similar to you, a Christian home in the Bible Belt, and you're exactly right. the 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 common vernacular in 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 that culture, be, you know, God, Jesus, the Bible, pa certain passages of Scripture you know, th there would be a working knowledge, right? And not, maybe not of the details of the stories, but, but a working knowledge of, you know, if you mentioned Noah's Ark <laughs> or you mentioned David and Goliath or, you know, like some of the, some yeah. of the highlights, right? Um, but, but it isn't the case now. And it certainly isn't the case in, in, in many contexts. I heard Tim Keller speak once and he said something that I found quite helpful. He, he said that, his parents' generation, the, the big question was, um, how can I be good? You know, there's a lot of like civic, um, uh, you know, responsibility and, uh, you know, people wanted to do the good thing, the right thing. Um, and then he said his generation, you know, the generation that was like teenagers in the 1960s, it was how can I be true? You know, what is true? What is truth? And he thought that now the, the, the question that younger people are asking is like, how can I be authentic? So you got shifts in, 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 in the emphasis, like in the 60s, it was very much, I mean, you'd hear the Beatles and Bob Dylan and all those people talk about, you know, what is truth. And we could talk about that. But authenticity is, is, is different to, to truth and it's something else. And not many people are asking, like, what can I do to be good? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's for sure. I, the, that, that, that question of authenticity, you're right. You, and you see that in art. You see it reflected in a lot of popular art right now. Yeah. Um, the, the struggle to um, see what, 
you know, you hear personal truth a lot, right? That, that comes out. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, 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 um, but I think this, this conversation segues great into imagine because in your book, imagine, which it's the 20th, uh, next year will be the 20th, uh, anniversary of its publication is that right i believe it came out in 2001 right yeah you you told me that that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll do some celebrating for that next year i i think that having the conversation about how christians in the arts operate how they think how they operate really is context is is vital uh in that conversation and that's why i think this is a good segue into that now that we are in this context where we're having to redefine terms, um, we no longer we no longer can make assumptions like the culture has a basic biblical, a, a, you know, a working knowledge of scripture, things like that. Um, I almost feel like the we're in a potentially a better position creatively as artists to in, to reintroduce the world, our audience to these wonderful biblical truths and themes and stories uh, almost, you know, as if they've never heard them before, because some of them have it, most of them have it. And so in a sense, I think it's a positive in uh, an opportunity. We could see it as an opportunity as artists uh, as instead of uh, seeing it as probably when you first read, wrote Imagine, many Christian artists saw it as a hindrance as a, Oh man, I've got to go into this context and there's all this baggage that's coming with me. Now I think it could be almost freeing in the sense that now, now I get a chance to talk about the authentic nature of my faith. Right. Because the, my approach has always been um, not so much people explaining their faith in the sense that you would encourage ministers to explain their faith and, call on people to uh you know change direction in their lives but to wrestle with what it what a christian world view is what 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 a how do we look at the whole of life as christians uh because going back to when i became a christian i i, I did ask the question of myself like well how how should i was already writing poetry i mean how should that change you know i i'd, I'd operated like any other poet which is you know whatever strikes you 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 write about it uh, do i have to do things differently instead of writing about whatever strikes me I, i've got this kind of uh, thesis that i'm trying to explain this this gospel message i'm trying to explain but i i quickly came to conclusion that that wasn't what i had to do but i had to still do you know write the things that moved you that that struck me um but my take on those things would be different and also the sort of things that would strike me would would be slightly different so um you know i i would look to a, a group like the beatles the way they wrote their albums uh, that i mean they they just uh you know the, the the magazine they were reading that week or the book or the country they just visited they were writing on the run and, and that's the sort of stuff that captured their imaginations and it all went on an album and people thought that it was some sort of big statement but it was just what was happening in their lives they, they were reporting on what they saw in the way that they saw it and I, and I thought that's my job and I, and I've always tried to encourage other Christians to approach life and uh, approach their art in that way I think there's a different sort of art I mean I have a friend um, who um, who writes what I think anybody would describe as religious poetry they're, they're 
based on Bible verses, Bible characters, stuff like that. And I think there really is a, is Malcolm Geet. I don't know if you've come across him at all. I don't, I don't believe so, no. Okay, he's based in Oxford. And um, uh, I, I think there really is a place for that. You know, like there's, there's been great, uh, you know, John Donne, there's been great writers in the past who, who, who have taken scripture as their, their main inspiration and have written very confidently about Bible verses and very un unapologetic about it. There's probably also a place for an evangelistic film, you know, if, if it's really well done. I don't know how, how, how you do it, but um, there is a place for it. But, but my encouragement's always been for people that are more in the general marketplace. And, and yeah. uh, you know, if they're a screenwriter, it's a story that captures their imagination. And you have to ask, like, well, why does it capture your imagination? If you're thinking Christianly, it's probably because it highlights stuff that you're really interested in as a Christian. Right. Yeah, I, I've been the same way too. My my entire life, I've, I think because I, I think because I became a follower of Christ at such a young age, I didn't know at the time, but I had that filter. Right? I had a natural filter that I engaged the general popular culture of art in such yeah. a way that I didn't know I was supposed to be doing it differently. <laughs> you know, and yeah, I and yeah, I yeah. and and. You know, I think what I was trying to ask before was I think that many Christians have been bothered by that filter. They've actually, they've actually, they've actually been almost embarrassed. I might even use the word embarrassed. They've almost been embarrassed with that filter. And so yeah. I think what you find is you find Christians who want to completely ignore that filter, or you have Christians that almost overemphasize that filter, if that's even possible. And so, and we're stuck in the middle somewhere, right? We're stuck in the middle. And you talk about and imagine exactly as you kind of laid out the idea that, uh, I, well, here's, here's how I've often said it is um, art doesn't have to submit to the message. The message has to submit to the art. Right. And yeah. I think that if the art submits to the message, it feels more like propaganda or a, or a gospel track or it, it, it feels like it, it no longer is in the art category. It feels like it's something else. Yeah. I would agree. So, yeah. And so have you seen movement? Uh, this is the one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, you wrote, imagine, like I said, going on 20 years is when it came out. Have you seen movement in this area amongst followers of Christ who are in the arts, have we made inroads? Have we improved? And, and, and how so? And then the opposite, have you, have you seen where maybe we've taken a few steps backwards? Not, not in a, you know, judgmental, harsh way, but, but just in a, you know, as an observer uh, and an artist yourself, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think the, um, the thing we were up against when I was writing the book, uh, a big thing was like um, Christians who felt that they wanted to pursue the arts, like were either not getting any encouragement from the church or, or the church was sort of saying, that's not an appropriate uh, occupation to follow. You know, it's okay to be a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer or ex you know, several other types of jobs, but um, it's, it's, 
you know, the arts can be a bit dangerous. You might get in with the wrong people and et cetera. So best to keep, keep out of it. And I, I think that's changed. And the other thing was, right, well, okay, if you, if you get involved in the arts, then your primary thing must be to evangelize in some way. Uh, and again, we've probably got over that. But the, um, the problem often is that you get people that, that get involved in the arts and, uh, and they're Christians, but they don't really think any more about it. They don't think about the burden yes. of having to evangelize has rolled off their shoulders, yes. but, the, but they don't have um, any sort of dis Christian distinctive that, that, that they're, they're bringing to, to their art form or, yes. or, or they, or, or the, I often hear people say, yeah, that's right. You don't need to evangelize. And then they'll tell me about a project they're doing and they'll say, yeah, well, um, you, you know, the two guys that are burglars, they're like, that um, they represent the two thieves on the cross and the, the house on the hill represents heaven. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't think there's the need for that. Um, I just, I, I mean, with my poetry, I just try to explore all all the things that kind of hit me. And sometimes, sometimes I might write something and I have to reject it. You know, I mean, I remember writing a kid's poem that I can't remember what it was. I mean, the gist of it, it was making fun of people for some sort of physical characteristic. And I thought, well, you know, you, that's not right. You know, that's not. That, that isn't a Christian uh, perspective. And so you might've got a few laughs for it, but that has to go. So there is, there is, you've got to be, you have to sort of censor yourself sometimes. Yeah. And well, I remember for when I was a young man, I felt, I actually felt a, um, I know this isn't popular for some people to hear this, but I actually felt a calling from God to go into the entertainment industry. But I remember in terms of, of what you were saying about how the church handles artists was my church didn't know what to do with me because they were supportive as long as it was something geared towards music. Cause mm -hmm. the church I grew up in, you could play the piano, you could play the organ, <laughs> you could sing. Right. That was about it. And when I oh, told them, no, I think it's supposed to be film and television. They didn't know what to do with me. It was uh, like, what do, what do we do with this? person you know right, and right. and it wasn't that they weren't encouraging it's just that i i no longer they they no longer um had a had a way to understand me um and a place for me and i think that for a lot of people you know at act one it seems like so many people that come through act one are people who are searching for a tribe they're searching for a place to belong because they're coming from contexts like I was saying earlier about how important contexts are there. It seems like so many of us are coming from contexts uh, of church communities that don't understand artists. They don't understand how to, you know, they have certain categories, but once you are no longer fit those categories, they don't know what to do with you. And I think that's one of the things that act one has provided over the years is, is a context where, um, those weirdos can fit uh, right. in your in your travels uh, with this book and the impact the book has made. Have you experienced something similar? Have you had people give you feedback in terms of you're finally giving voice to something that I've been struggling with for years? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the that's the most typical response. It's not. Um, I, I don't feel that I've come up with a new idea. I think I 
managed to express some feelings that people had had sort of you know hints of but hadn't been able to pull together and uh, um, and I really wrote it because uh, in the first place I was having conversations with people who were involved you know maybe in music or something like that and well the original that the impetus for it was a was a speech or a conversation you were having to a bunch of musicians in Nashville or something, right? Is that well? What it was? That, that's where it ended up, yeah. But I, but I think the talk was sort of directed at those sort of people. That I, you know, if I met a new person that was an actor or writer or, or a singer or something, uh, I was finding I had to go over the same ground again. Like you know, you have to give a bit of church history and you have to um, you know talk about the Plato's view of something and it takes a long time to get through all those things so I, I thought if I could write a book that had all the all those things that I've been saying to people and put it under you know between two covers um that that would be helpful so yeah I, I gave the um the tour um somebody was running a, a program where they basically aimed at musicians and they would have sort of people that they thought these musicians would benefit from hearing Christian or not the, the speakers um, and they would do uh, an evening in Nashville then they'd fly them on to LA and do an evening in LA um, so I did the first one in, in Nashville at Steve Taylor the musician's house that went very well and Steve liked it so much he um, he paid for a little booklet uh, of my talk to be produced. We had a company called Squint and, and he distributed it at some music convention or something. And then I started getting radio stations wanting to talk to me on the basis of the little booklet. So I thought, well, there's something there, you know, people are interested in this. And that, that led me to approach IVP and say, you know, this could be a, a full length book. And, um, and they took it on and they're a good company to work with because they kind of stick with, I mean, you say 20 years, but I mean, they stick with the book that length of time and uh, it ticks over and it gets onto college courses and schools and um, and I've updated it once, added a lot more quotations and stuff like that. And maybe it'll get updated again in the future. Well, yeah, we use it all the time. It's one of our core um, materials that we like to make yeah. sure that um, we pass on because just because, like I said, it, it, it gives language to what so many of us I've struggled with or thought about. And um, I think you're being very humble when you say you didn't create anything new. I think you, you, you might have not necessarily invented the concept, but you certainly gave voice to what so many people have um, struggled with. I, uh, and, and, and then, and, and helped bring clarity to those people. Could you talk just a little bit about, um, there's a tension and, and you talk about it in your book there's a tension there, and you mentioned it earlier, about quote-unquote Christian art. Uh, some people say there's no such thing. Some people say that there is. What are your thoughts on the idea of uh, there being such thing as Christian art? Well, I, th I think there's, um, there's such a thing as religious art, certainly. I mean, if, if people wrote poems about biblical characters, for example, biblical stories, um, I mean, hymns, uh, a form of Christian art. I, I mean, stained glass windows, you could say, are a form of Christian art, um, or, although they could be used for, for any sort of purpose, depending on what, what story you're telling. 
but I, I think the impetus for for myself is 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 truth. You know what is true, and as a Christian, you obviously believe that Christian doctrines are true. That's part of the the bigger truth uh, that you're trying to tell, you're trying to address. Um, but I think, like, if a if a photographer thought I, I'm only going to do Christian photography, then they would probably photograph like for Sunday school material or photograph church services or do portraits of ministers or uh, churches or maybe they go and do some charity work in you know in another country which is fair enough but uh, you you also could be a Christian and a photographer and, and, and your gift is just seeing the humanity in the people that, that you photograph you know that's uh, um, you know, I, I see people's photographs and I think, wow, you've you got some sort of real insight into people, you know, and a real tenderness and uh, uh, not saying everybody who does that sort of photography must, is a Christian, but surely every Christian should have some sort of insight into people and, and not tr treat them as um, objects of fun or, or ridicule or uh, make them all look the same, you know, uh, so that is also a Christian form of photography, but nobody's going to look at it and say, oh, that, that's, that's definitely a Christian photograph. If you look through the eyes of Jesus, you know, from the way Jesus is described in the Gospels, you know, he's somebody with compassion. He looked on the crowd with compassion. If you were a photographer and you looked on the crowd, you looked on the group, you looked on the street market with compassion, that, that should be the sort of photograph you take. I like that. What, what do you make of the rise of this new kind of subgenre of Christian film uh, that we've seen over the past decade or so? Um, it seems to be kind of tracking a little bit what was maybe the rise of maybe Christian music, but it seems like um, people are more comfortable with a subgenre yeah. than they are with engaging in the, what we maybe you and I would call the general public. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I haven't seen very many of them. Um, I saw, funny enough, I saw one the other day. It was called, um, uh, I think it was called Hell and Mr. Fudge. It was about a, um, it was about a, uh, a theologian whose name was Mr. Fudge. I thought it was a joke, you know, he was going to sort of fudge the issues or something, but he, his name was Fudge and he-, and he I haven't uh, heard of that one. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I watched it on, on YouTube and it was, it was kind of interesting in a documentary sense. It told the story of this minister and, and the sort of conflicts that he came up against. So you could kind of plot the actual documentary um, side of this guy's life. But, you know, the casting was bad. Like he, he's, he's an actor that was like about 40 and he plays himself. He plays this guy at 20 and also at like 50. His, his wife's uh, about, no, his mother or, or somebody was like about 10 years older than he was. It was all badly cast, uh, very cornerly written, you know, very, uh, I don't think it would pass Robert McKee's test on, on anything. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, as I say, my concern's always been for the, the general market. That seems like... It's like, uh, you know, when Paul spoke on the Oropagus, you know, that was that was the that was the place in Athens where people went and sold their intellectual ideas. And he thought, yeah. well, that's where I'm going to sell my ideas. Um, 
and if you don't if you don't do that if you're doing some kind of sideshow then you're not contributing to the main discussion that that's always been my feeling but then, then i think then i think Christians that make those sort of films, they think they're, they're going to have an easy ride, you know, because the audience is not going to be that critical. They, they will probably give it five stars if it tells the truth, not five stars if its casting's good, if it's, uh, you know, if the, um, if the dialogue's snappy or, or whatever, then they're not going to look at that stuff. They're just going to say, oh, it told the truth. I mean, I used to find uh, that was something I, I used to ponder on, you know, like are the Rolling Stones were they bad and therefore also all their songs were bad because they were not Christians they were not uh, trying to follow Jesus in any way yet a song like all things bright and beautiful must be a better song than satisfaction because all things bright and beautiful was a Christian song and satisfaction wasn't uh, but then I then I saw well satisfaction was a song about uh, not that I would listen to the lyrics and, and ponder like hmm, what's it, what's happening now but it was a song about the stresses and strains of being on the road, I guess, and, and that general feeling of like dissatisfaction, which, well, read Ecclesiastes, you know, I mean, there's a lot of that in the Bible too. So it's just a sort of a snapshot of, of one sort of feeling. But then you can get Christian songs that are sort of theologically bad, but do say something that's true. And, and Christians think that's that's a five-star song. Yes. And, and uh, um, I think, there's a couple of things. One is, I, you know, I don't have a problem with these films and even the the music as long as it's good. I, I think that's the yeah. that's the big rub that so many of us have is it feels as though you know to use the American baseball as an analogy. It feels as though if you can't compete in the major leagues, let's yeah. create a minor league so that and we'll compete here. Um, because we we're not willing to compete in the major leagues yeah. and and yeah. and it's that willingness to create your own little league and uh, only compete inside of that that I think frustrates um, many of us because why why would you not aspire and I think um, the you know the other the other thing is uh, you were bringing up was this idea that what is inside of something uh, or the uh, the the content of a piece um mm. what makes it quote unquote christian or not yeah and it feels as though what many people would describe as christian film in that subgenre we've limited the amount of kind of topics and things that we talk about that are quote unquote christian i think uh, i think schaefer talks about this in art in the bible we've been quoting him so much and the idea that you know your christianity is about the wholeness of the, you know, your entire holistic approach to life. And so it's almost as, as if these subgenres limit what Christianity can speak into versus mainstream artists. Like you said, they're, they have a blank canvas. They can talk about anything. They could talk about what's happening today or yesterday or what's going on in their life or their friend's life. And it just seems like we, one of the other problems is we limit ourselves in these subgenres with the kind of things that we allow our Christianity to impact and speak into? Well, the, the ones I've seen, I mean, they don't seem very authentic. They don't seem to present authentic sort of crises in people's lives. The, the people don't seem real. The dialogue seems stilted very often. Um, and 
you know, Robert McKee always, well, it's not just Robert McKee, but, you know, the, the general rule in screenwriting is like, show, don't tell, isn't it? So, uh, but uh, Christian approach is tell, maybe not even show. You know? <laughs> tell them, and then tell again, and then explain why yeah. you told it. <laughs> because because the, the word predominates in, in the church. And That's always right. I guess we we're sort of word oriented, and so we're we're, uh, we're people we're people of the word by by default. That's right. Yeah. So if someone if you know if someone says, "Gosh, I've messed my life up," and then the other person says, "Well, you should try Jesus," and the guy says, well, "What do I do?" Well, you just ask him into your life. You know, uh, th that that would pass because it's got the right words. And people think if you if you basically had some sort of story where somebody kind of messes up and then they have a friend and he takes them to a meeting and uh you know they hear the gospel and they convert and then then everything becomes hunky-dory they, they think if lots of people saw this film that um it would result in in conversions but um i don't i, I doubt it i there uh bono did an interview with eugene peterson before oh, yeah. he passed away a couple of years i think fuller fuller seminary sponsored it. I don't know if you saw those videos, but yeah, I did. one of the things Bono says is about Christian music is, you know, I want to hear about your terrible day. Now, I'm, I'm glad you're telling me about your good day, but tell me about your terrible day. Tell me about, yeah, yeah. don't, you know, if you're going to talk about your marriage, great. Talk about the bad days. You know, talk about your divorce, talk about yeah. the terrible things and, and, and yeah. talk about all aspects of life because yeah, yeah. our Christianity is supposed to be our faith is supposed supposed to be touching all aspects right. of our life i mean it's, it's a it's a huge challenge if somebody with with a lot of money could actually make a film that maybe did show somebody's life changed um and did it in a, in a really compelling way that that I, I mean audiences are very sort of cinema literate aren't they and and they uh well well maybe church audiences aren't so much but but the general audiences are and general and, and yeah they, they just won't put up with stuff that doesn't seem real or, or situations or dilemmas that don't seem real that they just kind of. And we, and we, and we just have too many options now there's, it'd be different yeah. if there wasn't as many options, but now there's so many options that they ought, if, if they get one whiff or sniff of this is going to be a didactic sermon. Mm. Um, and I just want to kick my feet up and watch a movie then. Yeah. They, they'll, 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 they'll pass on it for sure I, it's a hard thing to illustrate because you're you're not i mean the christian message isn't like your life is all messed up and you're really suffering and you're doing bad things and, and you're evil and you know you're evil and then someone comes along with a message and everything changes and then you know everything's so different it's 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 not like that for most people and and uh you know most people don't don't realize their lives are in peril then it's not if you had a physical analogy, they're not suffering. They've not got pains all over their body and aches. And, and then somebody brings a cure that they're, they're just totally unaware that they have this illness. That, that's the thing. So that's very hard to illustrate. It's much easier to illustrate a marriage falling apart or something like that in film. Yeah. It's, I once was lost, but now I'm fine. Was blind, but now I see that. That's that's a little bit more difficult to. <laughs> um, I remember Robert, Robert McKee saying, um, you, "You know, the worst sort of scene you could have in a film is where two lovers are sitting having a candlelit meal, and then one of them says, 'I love you,' and 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 the other one says, 'I love you too.' 
you know, he says that's, that's <laughs> the worst dialogue and situation you can have. Right. And I remember thinking that when I saw the Johnny Cash film, there's, there's a sequence where he and June are kind of fooling around in a hotel and uh, she says, do you love me? And, and, and he says, no. And, and you know, that's not true. Right. And that's far more compelling than if he'd said, you know, I love you. You know, yes. Yes. <laughs> but, but the Christian film tends to go along the line of, you know, I love you. I love you, too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Speaking of Johnny Cash, you uh, I think he's a great example. You wrote one of your books about him. Johnny Cash was uh, truly something special. He was a complicated figure, but he's made such a lasting impression what are your thoughts on the impact of someone like a Johnny Cash? Because uh, even at the time when he was writing, I don't think he was as appreciated when he was alive as much as after he's passed. I could be wrong on that, but here's, here's someone who lived a very, I mean, he had some pretty public demons that he struggled with uh, in his life, but he, especially towards the end of his life, I've read all these interviews by people who worked with him and, and worked with him. There, there was uh, people were really drawn to his faith. Like they, they, they really saw him as someone who was um, open about his struggles and his, but also his belief in God uh, and the ultimate redemption that come came through faith in Jesus. Curious if you could just kind of talk with us a little bit about your, what you learned about Johnny Cash and reading and writing the book and, and your thoughts on his legacy. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he was brought up in a sort of very Christian community in Arkansas. I mean, not, not far from Memphis, obviously. And, um, um, you know, it really, really meant a lot to him. And then when he first went to Sun Records, he, he was keen to do a gospel album. You know, that was kind of a, a high priority for him. And, and then he, you know, he did I Walk the Line, which I would say that's a, a Christian song, if you like. Yes, you know, it is. Song. Yeah. He's singing to his wife, saying, "I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to keep my marriage vows." Basically, he didn't, but he, but he intended to, and that 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 that's quite a um, a different sort of song to to put in the charts in, in, in those days. You know, like Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and everybody really going wild to to, to be talking about walking the line and uh, and talking about his heart and the condition of his heart and stuff like that. But but he but he he did kind of fall away and then he did come back. I, I guess people identify with the, with the struggles that he went through. They identify with the you know his relationship with June. There's you've got that kind of romantic side and how she uh, supported him. And um, I mean, some people reviewed my book and said that they kind of wondered if I was making too much of his faith, but. Uh, I, I wasn't because, he, I mean, his library was full of theological books. That's what he, in his private life, that's how he spent his time sort of studying theology. And uh, well, I, I did interview him in 1988. And I, um, and this is what I always do. If, if you know, somebody's a Christian, like, like Johnny Cash, and I knew he was a Christian, I don't tell them when, I, when I'm, before I do the interview or during the interview, because I want them to come over like, they don't know who I am. They're just talking to some general person. And I wanted to see right. if he talked about his faith in a very natural way, which he did. And then after I'd interviewed him, I, I gave him a copy of uh, Hungry for Heaven, which is a book that I'd written about rock music and religion. And then he invited me to come back on the bus that, that they had 
to London. They, they were playing down in Brighton. And um, I sat next to June and he sat over the aisle and reading my book all the way back to London. Then a couple of days later, he, um, he called me up uh, to tell me how much he'd enjoyed the book and how, how much he'd learned from the book. Wow. So, um, yeah, it was a, I, I think people respond to him because, uh, because of authenticity. There seems, there seems to be something authentic yeah. about him yeah. and something caring, you know, because he, before it was fashionable to uh, stand up for Native Americans and, yeah. uh, you know, ecological causes and prison reform and stuff like that, he, he was doing it, you know. So let's talk about, um, I'm sure a lot of people that are, are um, listening to this, they've been waiting for me to ask you about the Beatles. So let's talk about the yeah. Beatles. You, you have written extensively on the Beatles and... I, I think I sent you in prep, preparation for this conversation, I sent you that line. So, you know, I grew up in Memphis. Yeah. And so, of course, I grew up a huge Elvis fan, uh, you know, rhythm, old school rhythm and blues, of course, country and yeah. um, and but but especially Elvis. My mom stood in line at Elvis's funeral um, when his body was being shown at Graceland. The story she told us okay. kids was um, she stood in line for. 12 hours and then right when she got up to the gates they closed it <laughs> so she didn't get to see she said it right, right. literally got right to the gate but um uh there's that there's a famous deleted scene from pulp fiction where uh tarantino uh the scene that he writes uh, uma thurman is talking to uh what's his name's uh character and she says there are only two types of people beatles people or elvis people uh Beatles people, you know, can like Elvis and Elvis people can like the Beatles, but no one can like them equally. And I, I'm a, I'm an Elvis person who can appreciate the Beatles. I'm sure you're a Beatles person. I'm just curious for your thoughts of the, to kind of compare and contrast the, the, the impact that uh, both Elvis and the Beatles had, because clearly we're still talking about them today in so many different contexts. Are you do are you a Beatles person? I suppose I am because uh, it's probably just an age thing. In that, um, I mean, Elvis came on the scene when I was too young to. Uh, yeah. Well, even hear it, you know. Uh, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't commercial radio in Britain in those days, and uh, the BBC wouldn't have played him a lot, and there weren't a lot of pro programs on which he would have been played anyway but I, I was aware of him as a as a as an icon as a character and obviously the hairstyle and the, the clothes that influenced a lot of you know it had filtered down and influenced yeah. a, a lot of people yeah and I think John Lennon said once you know that there wasn't rock and roll there was just Elvis music you know it was Elvis <laughs> and everybody who liked rock and roll tried to be like Elvis in you know yeah. in the way they dressed in the way they did the hair and the way they moved and everything. So he was, um, he had a huge impact and there would be no Beatles if, if there hadn't been Elvis because they wanted to be bigger than Elvis, you know, and they had to, if you can, if you, if you want to be bigger than someone, you've got to have that person that you're going to be bigger than. Right. <laughs> and uh, so he was, he was the one they tried to, to beat. But, uh, but, uh, but my teenage very conveniently coincided with, with the rise and fall of the Beatles. So, uh, you know, uh, what better time 
you know, what better way to spend your life than, uh, you know, to have those records coming out as you sort of matured as, as, a, as a teenager. I, I, I do think that the Beatles probably, and, and you, I'm curious what your thoughts are, the Beatles probably have a more lasting impact on the genre of music itself. But uh, to your point, what you were saying, uh, Elvis's impact was probably more less about the music and more about the 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 celebrity the rock music itself, the 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 teenage mm. culture, um, all of that, the um, the look, the feel, the vibe. Um, would you say that that you could break down their influences in those ways? Well, I mean, Elvis didn't write his own song, so he, you know he was he was right. presenting the, the work of other people. He was the and performer. He was only one guy, so he couldn't right. express the four four personalities like the Beatles could. Right. I think a lot of it, well, a lot of it's to do with the the time they came along and, and the state of the world and the state of technology at that time. So uh, the Beatles just came um, like in in Britain uh, we we had national service you know you had to serve in the army or the air force or the navy for two years as soon as you became 18 and, and then they the Beatles were the first generation to miss that so all these things came into play and it was just like the perfect setting for this this thing to happen I think one of the main differences was that the, the first generation of rock and roll is not just Elvis, but, but other people in America and the UK, they were not highly educated. You know, they had left school pretty early. They were not great readers. They were not people with big ideas. The, the Beatles generation, you know, they got Paul who'd studied English to a certain level at school. You know, he knew Chaucer and Tennessee Williams and Dylan Thomas and people like that. And John going to art school, you know, it's a great, Art schools in Britain were a great education for people that maybe not cut out for like really academic work and maybe messed about a bit at school. But there was a great course because you would you would do life drawing. Um, you would do uh, you, you would probably see foreign. They would show you foreign films. They would take you to art exhibitions, gave you kind of like a rich cultural background. And then they, they came into music liking Elvis and rock and roll and show business and all that. And then, and then they were able to take it in another deeper level with because of their intellect, if you like, because of their cultural understanding, where, where it became less like show business and more like art. And, and it, it filtered down into sort of many areas of, of our lives, you know, from religion, you know, the um, <clears throat> sort of exposing us to Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, the whole thing of drugs and whatever. So it had a huge impact in that way. Uh, you you had a conversation once with John Lennon about faith. Is that right? Did you tell me that once? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was interviewing him and Yoko and um, at Apple Records office in in London in 1971, and sort of midway through our conversation, John disappeared to another area of the room because there, there were other desks and other people doing stuff. And uh, then he came back with this paper or magazine, like a paper, like, a, like an underground paper. And he said, look at this. And, and he put it on the desk and it was, uh, it was a Jesus, some Jesus people had produced this magazine called Truth. And, and it had a big center spread and it was a picture of John and it was like an open letter for some, from some guys who were in this community. 
and uh, and it said um, you know we followed you for years and we climbed mountains with you and but we we want to tell you about somebody that we met that changed our lives and I think he could change yours and uh, and John was sort of you know what do you what do you think of that and I said well what do you think of it and he said well I think they're nuts and and, and so we had this dialogue about um, we started off being about what these people said. And then it became about Christianity, and uh, it was uh, it was very unusual, very unusual, you know. That um, for for another interviewer who would have, I assume he thought I would say, yeah, it's a load of rubbish, like probably nine out of ten people that he would have met and done interviews with would have said that. Uh, yet he did it in front of me. That was yeah, it's quite quite amazing. Is that the only interview you ever did with him? Yeah, yeah. I, I got to know Paul later and uh, separately because um, I got invited to do the um, text for a, a photograph book. I wasn't told whose book it was. And then it turned out to be Linda McCartney. Mm. And they said, she's got these pictures, but she, she's not a writer and she wants you to interview her and, and do all the work. So I would go down to their house or the recording studio down in Sussex or their office in London. And, and I kind of got to know pull that way did the Beatles help kind of shape you as a writer um uh, what would you say that the the impact I mean I'm sure there's many but if you could uh (laughs) think of a few what are what are some of the ways in which would you say the Beatles uh have impacted and shaped shaped you as an artist well I think they had they had an impact on my faith in the way that um when George Harrison started talking about he'd say things like the kingdom of heaven is within. And uh, I think, hmm, I've heard that somewhere else before. And, uh, and he would, he would often talk about looking for truth and the truth will set you free. He would do sometimes quote that. And I said, oh, I think I've heard that before as well. And it, 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 it kind of, um, it, it kind of gave a bit of credibility to spiritual searching, you know, like, I'd followed the Beatles through, you know, the type of boots they wore and the type of jackets they wore. And, you know, they, they were people you kind of emulated. Uh, and then I, then they were getting into this stuff and you thought, oh, that's interesting. And uh, it, it, it seemed to sort of legitimize it and, and make it more a safer subject to, uh, to, to talk about. Uh, and it was happening across the culture, of course, and you know, like the hippie, revolution in san francisco and things like that i mean they were not talking about christian spirituality but they were talking about spirituality it was okay to talk about god you know so they did impact me that way and and i think artistically i i i wanted to do with poetry what they were doing with music i I would like to go into the same places you know the, the cavern club or whatever you know get poetry into the streets and the cellar bars and the cafes and the concert halls you know and not restricted to the library and um that that was i mean I actually wrote that sort of thing down that was my kind of goal and then um i was reading a music paper and there was a um, record company boss who, who said he he'd got together with leonard cohen and they were starting a new publishing company because they thought there were writers out there who were the equivalent of neil young or bob dylan or the beatles oh wow that, that's me so i got i got in touch and um this guy was called Tony Stratton Smith and his record company was called Charisma and Genesis was their, their major artist, major group. And he said, oh, you know, you sent me those poems. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, as you can imagine, we, we've had 
you know, a huge response to that story that was in Melody Maker. And I said, yeah, I thought you would. And he said, oh, but I, I just can't publish everything that I'm sent. And I said, no, I understand that. He said, but yours is one that we want to do. So that was my first my first book and my my first poetry collection. Wow. And, um, so. Did you yeah. did you did you did you kind of stumble into being a music journalist or was that something that you actually said, I want to, you know, I, uh, I'm curious, by the way, if you've ever seen the, the film Almost Famous, uh, if, that, if, yeah, that, yeah. if that film speaks to you at all. But is that is that something that was it the music that made you want to write about them or was it, you know, something else? I, I uh, actually Almost Famous was about Cameron Crowe and I, I got to meet Cameron Crowe, I got to know him a bit when, when he was on Rolling Stone in the, in, in the 1970s. Um, but uh, it was... I, I had this idea, well, I, I could maybe write a novel, I could write a play, I could, I had this idea like a man of letters, as I used to call them. But yeah, I could do, do that. And, and journalism could be something I'd, I could do. And, and I had this um, Beatles magazine, it was their official monthly magazine. And I was looking at it and there, there was a contribution by a regional journalist. And it was just like his view of the Beatles, you didn't need to research it or anything. I thought I could I could do as well as that. And my mum and dad were on holiday, so I was on my own uh, in my family home. And I um, I just tapped out this sort of 800 word article and sent it off. Next thing I know um, is I get a letter through the post saying, I guess you've seen your article in the November issue or whatever, and here's whatever money I got for it, I can't remember. And uh, I hadn't seen it. I went out and bought it. I was, I was thrilled to be in the Beatles monthly magazine. Wow. And he, he said, we, um, you know, we also publish this other magazine called Beat Instrumental. Maybe you'd be interested to contribute. And so um, that that kind of started me. Almost like if I if it had been a gardening magazine, maybe I'd now be a gardening expert talking to you about gardening. But <laughs> it was music. I mean, obviously, it was something I was passionate about and knew a lot about. But um, that that's how it came about. And I did I did three stories as a, as a freelancer. I interviewed Mark Bolan from a group called T-Rex, Jethro Tull, and then I did Rod Stewart. And then they liked what I did and they asked me to join the staff. So that was that was my wow. start into professional writing. You had several conversations with Paul McCartney. I'm just I wonder if you could, uh, any interesting anecdotes or stories about your interactions with him? What was, what, what was it like uh, uh, meeting him and uh, getting to know him? Well, meeting him was was kind of funny because um, I I I'm sure a lot of people have this feeling, uh, and that is you you felt you had to tell him your kind of Beatles story, <laughs> or you could sort of treat him as a normal person. <laughs> and I remembered um, <clears throat> when I was young at school, the girls had. Um, cut out these pictures of them. Uh, the, the Beatles are all sitting in these high back chairs and wear, wearing sort of brown suits and, and and they had them sellotaped inside their desks. And uh, and I, I mentioned to Paul about these pictures and, and he said, oh, you know, that was great. You know, when we first came to London, we'd never met anybody as exotic as these photographers. And they'd say, jump in the air. And we'd jump in the air and they'd say, hey, put some glasses on because, uh, if you if you put glasses on there's a lot of people that wear glasses and they'll like that and uh, he he was saying oh it was great because when we 
we came into <clears throat> when we came into the music business it was like the tail end of like what you call vaudeville and what we call used to call musical where, where you'd have maybe somebody juggling and somebody riding a unicycle and then there'd be a music group and and he said that was great you know coming in at the the tail end of that era we loved that so he's, he's very chatty and, and and friendly and um he actually um i'd given him a copy of my poetry book and uh, that was out at the time and uh and he read it and he called me and, and told me how much he'd enjoyed it, which was nice. You know, when I thought, going back to what you were saying earlier, did, had the Beatles influenced me, well, it was nice to complete the circle with him making a comment about my, uh, my poems. And then <clears throat> when I came to do um, A Hard Day's Right, which was my book telling the stories behind the Beatles songs, um, I was getting in touch with his brother, Mike, uh, because he, he took this wonderful picture of John and Paul at their council house in, in Liverpool writing. Um, I saw her standing there, you know, you can see the exercise book on the floor. And I wanted to use it in the book. And uh, he said, oh, <clears throat> I'll have to talk to uh, our kid, as he calls Paul. It's like my brother in, in Liverpool. I have to talk to our kid and uh, and then uh, I said, okay, I'll call you back. And I, I, I called him back. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I talked to our kid about you. He's, he said, he said, you're a Catholic poet. I said, well, I'm not a Catholic. Did he say Christian? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. He's a Christian poet, which was interesting because I, 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 I mean, it's interesting that he used those two things to describe me rather than he's that London music writer or whatever, you know. Right, right. But I, but thinking about it, I suppose like he meets so many journalists, that's nothing new. But somebody that he could categorise as a poet was not altogether different, but a little bit different. And then the the Christian thing uh, was interesting because he he must have detected that from reading the poems. It wasn't something that we'd never had a direct conversation about that. So I thought that was quite pleasing to me that he detected that wow. through the poems. You know, that is that's really cool looking back at over your career and all the different interviews is, is there one or two that were the most um surprising to you uh the, the interviews that you did that you came away i i really did not expect that from that person any uh anyone that really stands out to you to be the most surprising um well well john lennon just because of who he was i think and and the, the unique nature of uh, you know the Beatles and, and the fact that he then died so nobody else if somebody hasn't already met John Lennon they're not going to meet him now no. um, but 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 it, it's often uh, it's often sort of surprising people like there was a there was a musicologist called Wilfred Mellers who I interviewed for one of my books and, and uh, he was a musicologist at a university but he also liked he wrote a book on Dylan he wrote a book on on the Beatles and he was just such a fascinating guy to sit down and, and listen to about you'd be talking about the Grateful Dead and then he'd suddenly bring in Shakespeare and the Greeks and stuff like that and it was just it's like being in a lecture you know then Brian Eno I found absolutely fascinating as, as a mind um, I used to like um, I got to know David Bowie in his very early days and he was just I, I, I I went to interview him sort of in the early evening and we ended up spending like they invited me to have a meal him him and his wife to have a meal with them and uh 
we were talking all all evening into the early hours you know things like that he he but, must have been a he must have been a fascinating guy well the thing that sort of impresses me now is that this guy's known all over the world and a huge icon and and but when i first met him he was somebody who was hungry for publicity and they either he or his publicist would call the office can you you know david would make a good story for this and that and he the only thing he was really known for them was having done space oddity um so I went down to uh, Beckenham where he was living at the time and uh, he, he turned up with a little old old fashioned sports, open top sports car. And he's got like corduroy trousers and a roll neck and stubble, long hair. And uh, to think, you know, if you told me then that, this, that one day this guy is going to be, you know, like, you know, Bob Dylan, the Beatles or whatever, he's going to be this huge iconic figure. I wouldn't have been able to comprehend it. You know, he, I, I thought of him as somebody like myself. You know, he was just in his 20s and kind of struggling and trying to make a mark. And, um, and he'd just come back from America from his first visit. And he was, you know, telling me all about New York. And, oh, what's it like? What's it like? And, and he, he'd come back with all these. Uh, it would have been records in those days, not CDs and uh, maybe, maybe cassettes and stuff. Wow. He had a whole box full of stuff that he brought back from New York and he'd met Andy <laughs> And he was telling me about that. And wow. The funny thing is, he um, he was telling me about he'd written a song about Andy Warhol, and he'd written one about Bob Dylan. I think it was the Andy Warhol song he was mostly talking about. And I needed to go to the bathroom. He said, "Well, while, while you're in the bathroom, I'll I'll um, I'll play you that song because it wasn't out on the record yet." And so he, he got my tape recorder and he played the song on it. And um, I, I don't know what happened to the tape, but uh, um, yeah, you know, that, that could be worse something. You never know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, did you ever get a chance to interview Bob Dylan? No, I met him. Uh, I've met him um, about three three times. Twice with T Bone Burnett. We we went backstage at the Santa Monica Civic when he was doing his sort of Born Again tour with Chris Christopherson. We went back. That was interesting because there were people from the vineyard putting their arms around him and all praying for him. And and then we we went down to San Diego. And that's that's when uh, T-Bone sort of introduced me to him and said, this is yeah. Steve. We briefly chatted and then he then he disappeared. And then I saw him at the festival hall when he was launching a film called Hearts of Fire. And uh, he was surrounded by people and he was talking on stage, but I I thought I'll write my number on a piece of paper and give it to him. And, and I went up to him and I said, oh, I'm a friend of T-Bone. He goes, oh, T-Bone, T-Bone, yeah. And I gave him the number. <laughs> but I've never, I've never done an interview with him, no. Uh, you were going to ask me about Memphis and uh, Elvis. I, I never saw Elvis in concert, but I, I was in Atlanta in 1976. And I was working on a BBC film about black gospel music. And... Uh, um, I think I was in a cab and I heard the radio and it said that Elvis was appearing at the Omni in, in Atlanta. And I called up when I got back to the hotel and they said, well, the only seats left had an obstructed view. And I thought, no, oh, I don't want that. And then, then he died the year or two later and I wished I'd gone now. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> but I, I, I went to Memphis doing a music story and the local tourist board, whoever set, set me up, they put me in touch with a local journalist called Bill Burke, and he used to work for the Memphis Press Scimitar. And he was a young guy in the 
fifties and they, they kind of assigned him to the Elvis beat that it was an Elvis story. Bill Burke got to do it. So when Elvis came back from the army in Germany on the train, Bill Burke got on the train and, and accompanied Elvis and he was a great guy. And, uh, he took me around, he took me to Lauderdale court where, um, Elvis had lived and Hume's high school. I remember he packed a gun and put it in the, um, in the glove compartment, you know, because it was a, <laughs> a dodgy area. And I was the first person I'd been with that packed a gun because it was a dodgy area. But I also spoke to um, the Reverend Brewster, who had a East Trigg Baptist church, and it was a black church. And Elvis used to go there because he loved gospel, black gospel. And then I spoke to James Hamill, who was his minister at his church in, in Memphis. And I thought this guy would be boasting about, like, Elvis went to my church, you know, the church of Elvis. But, but he, 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 was uh, genuinely disappointed. He said, you know, I, I told this guy, I told him the right path to follow and he, and he didn't take it. And I, I'm kind of, I'm disappointed that he didn't respond to what he heard me preach from the pulpit, which I thought was very commendable because a lot of people would have probably made a life out of been like I was Elvis's pastor. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a, probably quite a few, I've heard several <laughs> uh, stories about quite a few people that felt disappointment when they felt like they had an opportunity to reach him yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. felt like they didn't get through and he, he said elvis came to him once and said pastor everything you told me not to do i've done and everything you told me to do i haven't done and i'm a very uh, not a very sad person something like that and he said he james hamill said you know that that gives you an insight into the you know into elvis's life I think he was in his early 20s or something when he said that to him. What led you to write the book on uh, Marvin Gaye? Uh, what was that? Uh, what led uh, you to write that book? Well, the interesting thing, like we, we're talking about, um, you know, as a, a, a Christian worldview and, and the things that kind of interest you as a Christian sort of naturally. When I look back over all the people that I've written about and all the stories, there's, there's some kind of redemptive theme uh, to the but I know I haven't I haven't said to myself you can only write about redemptive themes, but that inevitably happens. And I've 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 naturally been drawn to people that have had these kind of spiritual struggles in their lives. Johnny Cash, great example. Um, Van Morrison, another good example. Uh, and Marvin Gaye, um, you know, his father a minister, and uh, uh, you know, ending in that tragedy where the father kills the son. And, and I. I, I just thought there's got to be there's got to be a good story there because you know any story that starts like that you know the son of a of a I don't know, he wasn't a Baptist minister but a black Pentecostal minister uh, and then the, the Pentecostal minister kills the son there's got to be some sort of story there which, which, yeah. which there was and uh, that that was really my main interest and yeah. I I saw an article in a in a magazine it was an interview with. Um, Frankie Gay, who was Marvin Gaye's brother, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll write to him and mention that I'm interested in doing a book. Didn't know whether I'd hear back from him, but he, but he, he called me up and said he was interested. And as as a result of that, I went out and I met Frankie in L.A. But but Frankie was like an alcoholic, and uh, I didn't spend very long with him before I thought he he started to talk about our book, and I thought, oh well, I'm not. I don't think I'm ready for that, and uh, <laughs> I um, I kind of pulled back from personally being involved with them. But um, I ended up interviewing a lot of people in uh, Kentucky where the, where the gay family came from and then in LA and 
um, yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that theme of redemption because that's certain or, or, or the, the idea of redemption and people coming from these places of brokenness and things like that. I, it, it seems to me that should be one of our jobs as people of faith yeah, yeah. is to, is to point out these stories in these moments to that. Our yeah. faith is a real faith that actually makes a difference in people's lives. And in spite of the hardship that people like true, genuine, devastating hardship, there can be a change. There can be hope on the other side of that. Well, I, I think, um, I think it's important for me that the people I write about ask the big questions or struggle with them in some way, not necessarily that they come to the same conclusions that I've come to, but at least they say, these are the big questions. These are the things worth talking about. Right. Right. So if you do that, I think you, you keep the big questions alive. And I think that's, that's, that's one of our jobs is to keep the big questions alive. If, if the big questions cease to become important and that they just don't figure in people's imaginations, then I think, we've lost a lot yeah but when people are struggling and wrestling with them i think um there's this kind of hope speaking of the big questions in life this is a good segue i've got some uh big questions these are these are not these are silly these are silly questions okay these are silly questions but i i had them here we've been talking about all the different people you've um written about and so i want to give you some either ors so just like i said that the whole Elvis, you're either an Elvis person or a Beatles person. You're, so you're going to tell me now, are you, which are you? Are you a this person or that person? Okay, are you ready? Um, yeah. uh, Paul or John? Hmm. I'm, I'm more like John. Okay. Michael Jackson or Prince? Prince. Okay. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. All right. Uh, Tolstoy or Dickens? Dickens. All right. And then here's, uh, here's, I'm going to go, there's going to be three options for this one. Okay, here we go. Lord of the Rings, Narnia, or Harry Potter? Um, Narnia. Okay. Okay. Why, why Narnia? Because I haven't read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I, I, I read Harry Potter to my son, and, and I would read it, but I wouldn't remember any of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Autopilot. And my son would be saying, oh, I know what's going to happen next. And uh, I, I go, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Do you think it's important for a writer to get out of their head and write for the, for the sake of, like, you know, for you? Is it is important? If after a while, if, if it lives up here for too long, it, it starts to do things to you. Like, do you, you, you got to get it yeah. down on paper somehow? Yeah, I, I think I think it's yeah. A, a writer has to write. I think that's um, and and it's it's in the act of writing that you you discover what you weren't aware that you knew. Like, well, when I, when I had my children, I I started to write poems for children, and I that's my the recent one is my I think my sixth book that I've done for children I, I, I never would have imagined I had one poem that I could have written for children but you know it's, it's like 
it's like a magic trick where you, you know you pull out flags and you know like uh, you know like magicians pull out all this stuff out of a top hat it's a, it's a bit like that you, you've got stuff inside you that you didn't know existed and also if it's not poetry if, it, if it's um, more documentary if you're writing about a subject you you sometimes surprise yourself with your well-formed opinions that you have that you've maybe never expressed and it all comes together what do you say to that person that says I have to be inspired to write. I need, I need inspiration. Um, I think somebody said inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, I think that's more likely to happen when you, when you're younger, when, when things like, uh, I remember when I was writing my first book, like I, like red buses in London and uh, falling in love and uh, having coffee. I mean, everything was like, if not a new experience, at least something that you'd never written about. And you thought, oh, it would be great to write. And uh, as the years pass, you find you've, you've covered a lot of topics and, and you, you maybe got to revisit them uh, right in another angle. It's, 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 it's harder work, I think. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you've, you've got to kind of work at it. It's not going to just kind of strike you like that. But, but some things do. Inspiration's an interesting thing because even non-believers tend to talk about it in, in a, a mystical way. Like, you know, it's not my, it's not my song. It came from somewhere else and stuff like that. But I think it's, uh, it's a combination of stuff that, you know, stuff you've put in your uh, head over the years and, and somehow two things kind of link up that you'd never saw, seen the linkage and uh and that that's the flash of inspiration would you say that that's in, in all the interviews you've done you've done over the years um and all the um work you've done with all these amazing masters of the crafts would you say that's that's something that you have found similar to to many people this idea of curiosity like you, you in order to be uh, successful or uh, well, I don't even know if we want to use the word successful but one of the keys to um, being an artist is you have you have to be curious uh, you have to be open to um, these inspirations and these things that all around all around you what, what would you say are some of the key things that you've learned over the years about the, what inspires an artist well I, I, yeah I think I think there's two things really what one is like to, to be creative and to come up with good new things you, you you need to be curious you need to you need to um <clears throat> like uh you know dig away in unusual areas like like if, if i see a free magazine somewhere i'll pick it up because there could be something in there you know you've got you got to be aware and uh responsive to stimuli and and you push yourself into different different and difficult situations because something might come up uh when i when i was i wanted to do a travel book that followed Car jack kerouac's journey across america and uh when i was doing that i, I found that the more i pushed myself into a situation you know, walk through a door follow an alleyway that's when the interesting stuff happens if you don't do that then it's very bland you know um, but but the other thing, and, and artists are often not very good at this, but the ones that are successful tend to be, and people like David Bowie, I put in that category, is, is they're also they not only have that that creative side um, 
in terms of writing the song or whatever it is, but they have a creative side in, in marketing themselves and a great tend to have a great belief in themselves that, that they're, I mean, not everybody who believes in themselves becomes successful, but because of the job that I've been doing, the people that I tend to meet are the ones that believe in themselves and they have been successful. <laughs> so you, you, you it can tend to lead you to think that everybody that believes in themselves ends up as a star or, you know, with a hit record, but there are deluded people who, who think very highly of themselves. But, but, but very often um, artists are not very good at marketing themselves. They're not very good at, you know, earning money, budgeting. I probably put myself in that category. I mean, it's, it, it, there's something we'd like another person to do that stuff for us while we get on with the real hard work of doing the writing. I but it, but it, it sort of push out sometimes. And uh, I, when I think of some of the, the good things that have happened in my life, you know, it's been a sort of a step forward. It, it tends to be when I've taken a risk in some way and thought, well, I mean, I'll give you one example. Um, I was doing a story for a music paper about, it was about the London County Council and licensing premises. And one of the owners of the, uh, the premise that I was writing about was Richard Branson. And so I was speaking to Richard, you know, Richard Branson. Yeah. Uh -huh. Virgin, Virgin, yeah, yeah. Virgin record. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I was talking to him and, uh, I said, oh, I've got a copy of a magazine that you used to edit when you were like a teenager. It's called Student Magazine. He said, really? He said, I don't even have a copy myself. And I said, I'll tell you what, um, if you give me lunch, I'll, I'll give you the copy of the magazine. So he said, well, come over. And uh, he was living on a barge and uh, on a canal in London. So I went over, had a meal with him. And, and he said, um, I don't know if you've got any ideas for books, because my brother-in-law's going to head up Virgin Books and they'll be looking for book ideas and so I went to Virgin Books with two ideas one was um, uh, revamping a book that I'd done about Eric Clapton called Conversations with Eric Clapton and the other one which I didn't think they'd be interested in was um, Hungry for Heaven which was about uh, rock music and religion and they, they went for that and uh, it got published by Virgin Books so if I hadn't have taken the risk of saying hey you know I'll give you the magazine, you take me to lunch. <laughs> uh, that opportunity wouldn't have opened up. And I can think of a number of times when I, I just kind of stepped out of line a little bit and did something and, uh, or I, I shouldn't really, um, I, I shouldn't phone that person. They're gonna, they're gonna, oh, they'll think badly of me. I'm, I'm annoying them. And oh. and then you, you find, oh, just do it. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, It's like a, it's like a, the need for, um, maybe at times irrational courage <laughs> to, yeah. to risk and you, you know it's like you, you you maybe you shouldn't but 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 you have to you yeah, yeah 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 if you think on a project like what's the ideal thing I'd like well I'd like it to be published and look like that and to have these illustrations and I'd like that person to endorse it on the back cover and that person if you think like how in an ideal world how would I like it to be and there's probably no reason why you can't do some of those things you know yeah i yeah. think the bible speaks against selfish ambition but not ambition ambition no. right and, and i think that sometimes we get confused with that so yeah um i wonder if you would do us the pleasure of ending our time um with maybe uh reading one or two of some of your poems um when you came and spoke uh, at our act one um retreat oh, yeah. a couple of, couple of years ago 
you indulged us with with uh, a little bit of a poetry reading and it was uh, fantastic. And I just oh. wonder for those who maybe aren't as familiar with your uh, beautiful poetry, uh, if there's maybe one or two um, pieces you could read for us. This is, um, I, did, I did this book, was called The King of Trist and, and Bono did the foreword to it. And uh, this, this poem was called The, the Nail Man which is a, I suppose you would call it a religious poem. The Nail Man. <clears throat> I, I was thinking like, you know, somebody had the job of knocking the nails through Jesus's hand. You know, that was his job that day. Lost to history. We don't know who it was, but somebody must have done it. Which one was it that held the nails and then hammered them into place? Did he hit them out of anger or a simple sense of duty? Was it a job that had to be done or a good day's work in the open air? And when they clawed past bone and bit into wood, was it like all the others? Or did history shudder a little beneath the head of that hammer? Was he still there packing away his tools when it is finished was uttered to the throng? Or was he at home washing his hands and getting ready for the night? Will he be among the forgiven on that day of days? his sin having been slain by his own savage spike. Here's a completely different sort of poem. Um, <clears throat> in the room that I'm uh, speaking to you, there's a, there's a window there. And when I'm sitting at my desk, I can look out the window and into my garden. And then there's a garden that backs onto my garden. And uh, I was looking out there one day and uh, there was a woman in the garden and she was... Um, she was doing a painting and then, then she was kind of dancing. She had some music on. And, and this was just, a, I wrote a poem just about what I could see out the window. <clears throat> a woman, it's called Private Dancer. A woman with blonde hair and a low back sun top is in her garden painting a portrait. She's painting it from a color photograph. From where I am sitting high up in my room, it looks like Paul McCartney, but there are branches in the way and it could be George Harrison. Her children are at school. She is alone. She plays the Beatles, the Monkeys, and the Traveling Wilburys on her cassette player and shakes her denim rump and pink white shoulders as if she were 15 again. She throws back her hair and holds it tight at the nape like a model on a catwalk or a mistress in a hotel room. She gazes hard into the eyes of Paul McCartney or it could be George Harrison. She has no idea that I own a pair of binoculars with fully coated optics and write poetry. <laughs> That's great. <clears throat> so, you know, they're, they're two completely different things, but they, um, they catch the same attention, which is my attention. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There, there was one that you wrote, uh, that, you get, that you read to us. It was, a, it was about the queen? Oh yeah, am I remembering that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have that someplace? Because yeah, I, I think a, that one is I so funny. And is and this is from. I want to make sure people know which book they can. You know which books these are oh, from right. too. Okay, uh, that that the one I just read the the two that I just read are from um, a book called uh, The King of Twist. Okay. Uh, but the, but the one that I'm about to read, if I find it, because it's on my laptop. 
is um, okay. It's from my next book, I hope, which which is not yet published. Um, um, and the, my working title is uh, Too Much Is Not Enough. <clears throat> okay, so this is about the queen, our queen, my queen. The queen, her life has been varied, it's true, with corgis and castles and tea. But one thing her majesty lacks is that she has never met me. No, the queen has never met me. I've never sat down by her throne. She's waved at me from a distance but never invited me home. <laughs> I've kept my side of the bargain. I've bowed and bent at the knee. I've sworn to do her my duty. I've paid into HMRC. I've prayed for her life to be happy. I've prayed for her life to be long. I've flown a flag in her honor and lifted her name up in song. Yet poems with my name attached are not among those that she's read. My books on the Beatles and Beats are not at the side of her bed. My effect on her has been nil. I've not made so much as a dent. But while she's on each stamp that I've stuck, her face is on each pound that I've spent. She knows about Britain in general. She knows about jewels in the crown. She knows about trees on her parkland. But her knowledge of me lets her down. <laughs> there I love it. It's so well done. Thank you, Mr. Steve Turner, for such a fantastic conversation. Thank you for your gift okay. of poetry, your gift of writing. Um, thank you so much. You have been such a, a, a gentleman, uh, such a generous, kind, gracious gentleman to, to me, to Act One over the years. Um, you've made a tremendous impact to on those of us who are trying to tell great stories and help other people to tell great stories. Yeah. And um, in the end, that's what we want to do. We want to see great people make great stories. Yeah. And um, you've, uh, you've influenced uh, so many and uh, just thank you for your time. And thank you so much for all you've done. Thank you so much. I mean, what, what I, what I would love to see is, um, you know, like a couple of Broadway shows that were um, have have some kind of Christian smell to them, you know, and uh, and uh, <laughs> just a hint, winning. just a, yeah, just a whiff, just a whiff, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, a best-selling novel, and uh, you know, like a real presence. So if 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 Time Magazine was was doing a survey of sort of culture today, they they they'd notice it as a kind of a an influence there that that would that would be a goal to aim for but thank thank you for having me absolutely i from your from your lips to god's ears i i want you to know that um you are um you know your book like i said we we use it every year and it's made a tremendous impact on so many people's lives and i just want to make sure our audience knows that uh, it's one of many books that you've written, including um, your, uh, how many books of poetry uh, do you have now? Um, well, the, the kids, the, the ones for children, I've got six and then think there's maybe, uh, I did a, about five, I think adult, adult, I have to call them adult books. Now. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> for, for my generation, let's say, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and one more hopefully coming. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done all these poems and, and they're, 
the, all the poems were sort of influenced by the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, it's one of my favorite wow. books of the Bible. So they're not about Ecclesiastes, but I've kind of used those um, verses as, as a kind of a prompt wow. to make me think about an area of life. Well, maybe when that book comes out, we'll, we'll have you back on to talk about it. Cause I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I love, yeah. I love your work. So thank okay. you so much for, for joining me uh, today. And, and um, I like to end these by, uh, praying for my guests. Would it be okay if I pray for you now? Sure. Let's pray. Our most gracious heavenly father, I just want to pause and thank you for um, my friend, Steve Turner. So grateful for him. So grateful for his life. So grateful for how you have used him to speak to so many, to encourage and challenge and inspire so many. God, I'm, I'm grateful that years ago you took this young man and you uh, gifted him with the gifts of words, with the gifts of phrases and sentences, that you gifted him with the, um, uh, the gift of syntax. And God, I, I pray that you would continue to use his work uh, to bring joy and comfort and challenge uh, to, to, his, to his audience. God, I pray that uh, we would all seek to be... Um, fully mature followers of you that tell great stories. God, help our stories to be um, uh, wide and broad in our uh, approach on how we reach people um, by just telling great stories. God, I pray that you would um, continue to use Steve in a um, powerful way and just thank you for his time today. And we pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood. Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com.